Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Welcome to session five, week five of five. This is the last one. So just a side note, I do have uh, copies of other sessions of notes, if you missed any of the weeks and would like them, I can get those to you. But tonight we're going to be finishing off this five-part series on the deity of Christ and the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' deity. So again, the, the, the purpose of this little mini-course is to really see the length and the breadth and the width of the evidence for Jesus' divinity. This isn't just something that uh, church fathers from many, many years ago decided upon after Jesus' death. You know, that it just, they just made this up. Um, that is not the case. There is ample evidence for his deity. And we want to not just be sure of it for ourselves, but we want to understand it so that we can boldly proclaim it, have clarity on it, as we share with others. Whether that be someone stopping you and trying to tell you that Jesus isn't divine, or a family member, friends, etc. We want to be able to give, the Bible says, have a, be able to give a reason for your faith, a defense of your faith. This is part of that, is understanding who Jesus is, not just the message of salvation, but understanding how it is that this man that we call Christ Jesus, how is it that this man can save us from our sins? He would not be able to save us from our sins if he was not fully divine, if he was not perfect um, in character, perfect morally, without sin and blemish himself. First, uh, I'll give a little mini-review, and then we will go into... A little bit more into the reasons why Jesus was crucified and the connection of those of why he was crucified and how from that we can talk about Jesus' deity and then we will talk about Jesus sitting upon God's throne which is the S and seat so as you know the acronym Jesus shares the honors that are due only to God in other words he is the same worship that only God deserves, prayer, adoration, all the different religious rites are done in the name of Jesus. So that is one of the ways that we can say that he is God. Jesus also shares the same attributes that only God possesses. So Jesus wasn't just more loving than us. He was perfection in everything that he did. Um, and he also possessed the attributes of God that we cannot possess ourselves at all. None of us are eternal. We can't be part eternal. None of us have all knowledge, all power, etc. So Jesus also shares the same names that God has. We see over and over again, he is called um, by the same names of Jesus in the Old Testament. He identifies himself as Yahweh. As, as he's, he says, he calls himself the I Am. He's pointing back to Old Testament verses over and over and over again saying that he is the first and the last he's the bridegroom he's the shepherd he's the rock uh, many if not all of those terms are specifically tied to old testament verses 
that are specifically talking about Yahweh. So then we saw last week that Jesus does the same works that only God can do. So Jesus is found creating the earth, sustaining the earth, having power to forgive sins, um, and all of the other things that we talked about last week. So Jesus is able to work um, in the same ways that only God can work. So <clears throat> on number four under the review, it says, Jesus Christ does everything that God does. He creates and sustains the universe. He saves people from their sins. He provides them with every spiritual blessing. He speaks with absolute truth and authority. He raises the dead and judges all humanity. Jesus Christ does all of these things from the highest position in all existence. All right, so tonight we're talking about Jesus sitting on God's throne. I have a, a joke for you. Did you know that God is left-handed? Do you know why he's left-handed? Because Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. He's not exactly sitting on God's right hand. So Jesus uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin. So all four Gospels record Jesus being questioned by the Jewish Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas. So the Sanhedrin could not legally sentence anyone to death. Did you know that? So the, the Jewish religious leaders, they could not sentence anyone to death because they were under Roman control and only the Roman magistrates could sentence anyone to death. So Caiaphas needed a political charge against Jesus in order to convince Roman authorities that Jesus was worthy of death. But Caiaphas also needed a religious charge in order to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was worthy of death. So Caiaphas wanted to put Jesus to death. He did not have the authority to sentence someone to death. He needed to convince Rome that Jesus was worthy of death. He also needed to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was worthy of death. And this is how he did it. So the false witnesses that accused Jesus before the Sanhedrin, as we see in Mark, they were not consistent enough in their testimonies for them to be used. How frustrating to the Jewish religious leaders. Like, come on, get it together. You can't You just say the same thing. Everybody, say the same thing so we can get this man crucified. But it says that they could not... They failed at having a consistent testimony. So that aim, that, that uh, choice of method failed. And even in the midst of the false testimonies, Jesus refused to comment or defend himself. How many of you have been falsely accused? How many of you are really good at not defending yourself when you're falsely accused? I am not very good at, de at not defending myself when I'm falsely accused. If I feel like some, someone is misunderstanding my motive or what I'm saying or how I'm saying it, and I feel like they're accusing me of having uh, of ill intent, that's frustrating. And that riles me up probably a lot more than it should. So the, so the, so the reality is Jesus in perfection even as false accusations are coming at him, Jesus is able to stay calm, be 100% in the spirit, 
And this is what's happening in Mark 14, 53. So let's read it. It says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were, they were not finding any. So they were trying to obtain testimony against Jesus. They were not finding any. Verse 56, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to himself, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So they continued to try to find false testimony. And then finally, Jesus has asked a very specific question. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am. So he answered directly, I am. But then he quoted two verses, two different passages in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to dive into. These two different phrases do not come from the same verse. They come from two different places in the Old Testament. Number one, it says, the son of, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and then he also says, and coming with the clouds of heaven. So we're going to dive into those two, those two references because this, it was this answer that brought the Jewish religious leaders into a frenzy, a unanimous decision where they said, yes, he is worthy of death. So why was Jesus' answer to this singular question causing everyone to believe that Jesus was worthy of death. That's what we're going to dive into. So he finally confessed that he was indeed the Messiah. This is exactly what the Sanhedrin were looking for. The Jewish understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to be a warrior king that would free them from oppression, which naturally would be a threat to Rome. Now they have the evidence they believe will be sufficient to convince Roman authorities to crucify Jesus. Once he is dead, it will prove to the rest of the Jews that Jesus was a false Messiah and not a legitimate king that would overthrow Rome. So you understand, they needed evidence to convince Rome to crucify him and evidence to convince the people that he was worthy of death. So here, they are seeing that his claim to be the Messiah and then these subsequent claims, they see that as reason to convince, as evidence to convince Rome 
that Jesus was not just a religious person, but that he was the king of the Jews. That he was an actual king, and they wanted to convince Rome that he was a threat and therefore deserving of death. So I want to explore this charge of blasphemy. Why did the Sanhedrin claim Jesus was blaspheming? Matthew 9, 2 through 3. It says, And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. So here we see another example of the Jewish religious leaders seeing from their, from their perspective that Jesus was blaspheming. And here in Matthew, we see that he is claiming the authority to forgive sins, which the Old Testament declares only God can do. So I brought that up in a prior teaching. So the religious leaders are interpreting this as Jesus declaring himself to be equal with God or divine. So that is the issue. That this issue of blasphemy is because the Jewish religious leaders are saying, you are considering yourself to be equal with God. That is blasphemy, and therefore you are deserving of death. So John 10, verse 24 to 33, says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered then, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So that is, again, very clear. The reason why they wanted Jesus to die was because of these instances that was throughout his ministry. It culminated, culminated in, in the, the Mark 14 verse that I just read, but throughout his ministry we see these flashpoint moments where the Jewish leaders are saying, you are claiming to be God and you are deserving of death. And that's why it says they picked up stones to kill him. So they were unsuccessful. There was this desire in them to put him to death throughout his ministry, and they were unsuccessful, right? There's that verse that says they led him to the edge of a cliff to push him off a cliff, and he somehow made his way through the crowd. So John 8, 56 through 59, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. So again, this is a declaration where Jesus is claiming association with God. He's claiming deity. 
at, on a level that was not normal. Um, so they saw that as blasphemy, and they again tried to kill him. So Jesus was claiming existence prior to Abraham's life, and he was essentially claiming to be Yahweh. So and then John five sixteen through 18 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's really important and powerful to put these passages all side by side, because again, the naive and those that don't know the scriptures they will come at you with passion and say, tell me, they'll even shake a Bible in your face. Show me in the Bible where it says, where Jesus said that he was God. And they're missing the whole point. Literally, the Jewish religious leaders throughout the entirety of Jesus' ministry, over and over and over again, they are on the brink of, of either attempting to put him to death or that desire in their heart is getting more and more fuel as they're watching Jesus do things where Jesus is claiming deity over and over and over and over again. He's claiming, I and my father are one. I'm doing what my father does. I'm not, I'm not from here and all these other things that he's making all these claims and they are being stirred up. And praise God for these conclusive statements in the scripture. Like, we, we don't even have to read between the lines. When it says explicitly that the Jewish leaders were seeking all the more to kill him, and it says not for breaking the Sabbath, but, all, but because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Like it doesn't get clearer than that. And these are verses that we need to know exist. And something that I'm doing is I am beginning to really take scriptures for different topics. And instead of just vaguely knowing they're there um, and then needing to go find them, I'm making lists. Lists of scriptures. So if, if, if I want to pull up lists on what is the gospel or pull up lists on holiness or sanctification or pull up lists on the deity of Jesus or whatever, I have them available. And I can have them on a note in my phone and I can, 30 seconds, pull it up. So in any conversation, I have something to say, right? So any of us can do that. And taking notes like this and, you know, familiarizing ourselves with the, with the verses and then just organize them yourself. Copy and paste them, type them out, put them on your phone and label them so that you don't just have to remember like 18 months from now, hey, I, I took a class on the deity of Jesus. I, I know he's God. That's not going to help you that much if someone's coming to your door or you have a cousin or, or a fr friend at work is you know saying Jesus isn't God. Saying you took a class once, that doesn't give them anything. That doesn't actually point them to a single verse. right? So my encouragement would be try to do something with this content a little bit more than just hear it. 
so that, again, so that you can be ready. Because the, f like verses like this, m multiple verses, I mean, take three or four and put them, put them side by side. It's like Jesus was claiming equality with God. End of story. So if, if nothing else, we have to be able to confidently say Jesus believed himself to be God. Now an unbeliever could argue with that and say, well, I don't agree. But at least they can see that Jesus, number one, was claiming equality with God, and number two, was crucified for it. I mean, talk about the, the evidence that that's what he was believing and saying, is that was, that was the motivation for his crucifixion. So Jesus was constantly speaking and acting above the religious laws and customs. He was constantly healing on the Sabbath, regularly claiming co complete truth and authority in what he said, and regularly claiming power and authority over things that only God had power and authority over. So he was bypassing the power system, the leadership structure of the Jew, of the, of the, of the religious system of that day. He was bypassing it and saying, on my own authority, I don't have to quote the, quote the rabbis, on my own authority, I can forgive sin. On my own authority, I can declare this. And he came with measures of power and authority and truth and conviction that was unheard of. And that really, really, really bothered the Jewish religious leaders. All right, so now we are going to get into these two uh, quotations from Mark. So Jesus sitting at God's right hand on God's throne. So this, and this, I'm on page four, this accusation of blasphemy had been in the hearts of the Sanhedrin for quite some time now as they saw Jesus act and speak in ways that made himself out to be God. Many times they had wanted to stone him or throw him off cliffs, but their efforts always failed. They were never, but now they were never more unified or committed to put him to death. So Mark 14 61 through 64, I will read this portion again. It says, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing their clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So it was not so much Jesus claiming to be the Messiah that causes the Sanhedrin to cry blasphemy. It was these following two phrases that makes them tear their clothes and vehemently cry for his execution. Both of these claims that Jesus makes are quotes from the Old Testament. So Psalm 110 verse 1, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So in, in, if you just read it in English, it'll say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And if you look at the Hebrew, it's saying the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus was applying this verse to himself and claiming that the Messiah himself would be more than a Davidic king. He would be sovereign over all and sit on God's throne and be honored as Lord, claiming to sit 
at God's right hand was the same as claiming to be equal with God. So this is what he's quoting. He says, are you the Christ? He says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. So he's saying, that's me. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power. That, that, again, could not have been more clear to the religious leaders that he was claiming equality with God. So even, even the Sanhedrin could not go into the Holy of Holies anytime they wanted. Hear that. Even the Sanhedrin could not go into the Holy of Holies anytime they wanted. Many of them had most likely never even seen the Holy of Holies. Hear that. The top religious leaders of Jesus' day, many of them had never even seen the Holy of Holies by nature of how it worked, that only one was appointed per year to go in and then leave. Once a year, one man. So many of these leaders had never even seen the Holy of Holies, and here Jesus was claiming to be able to enter God's throne room and sit on his throne. And not just once, but to live there. That was, that was what Jesus was saying. The Son of Man, you shall see the Son of Man sitting, like perpetual sitting, at the right hand of power. Like, I wish I knew a better way to put this out there. But he was claiming a level, again, he was claiming to be God. He was claiming a level of greatness that no Sanhedrin could ever dream of. All that the Sanhedrin could do, I mean, they could, you know, they could rub shoulders with one another. They could, jo they, they, they could jockey for position and jockey for influence and badmouth each other and try to mic drop their wisdom sayings and quote the right people from generations behind them to gain influence. They could do all of that, but they couldn't just willy-nilly, anytime they wanted, walk into the Holy of Holies. And here Jesus is saying, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power with Yahweh on his throne in a perpetual state. That is why they unanimously, without question, without hesitation, said, now it's time this man needs to die. But he also said this. He said, coming with the clouds of heaven. This was a quote from Daniel 7 that Jesus was saying was referring to him, his identity, and his future. So Daniel 7, 13 through 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So understand, the religious leaders, they know, they know these prophets. They know the Torah. They know the prophets. So they know that when Jesus is saying, you will see me coming with the clouds of heaven, they know that he was not just throwing out some random phrase. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that he 
was quoting Daniel 7, and this was the content and the context of Daniel 7. There was this man, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and it says to him was given dominion. The man, the son of man that was coming on, with the clouds of heaven, that man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Whoa. I mean, again, there's measures of influence that religious leaders can have in a given generation, in a given nation. But Jesus was claiming something so thoroughly far and above any of the famous Jewish rabbis of the time or of any generation that had gone before them. He was saying, I am this guy that will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. I am the one that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language will serve me. My dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Again, he wasn't just saying, hey, I visited the throne of God once. He's saying, I'm, I'm, go I'm going there to stay, and I am going to rule the nations with everlasting glory and dominion and power. And that was what thoroughly convinced those religious leaders unanimously to put Jesus to death. So this was the final straw that pushed the religious leaders to make sure that this time Jesus was going to be crucified. Jesus was saying that he was a heavenly divine figure who would be seated at God's right hand, exercising divine rule forever over all people everywhere. I mean, it's a little bit annoying if someone in our life thinks they're all that, <laughs> you know, that they're the best at everything and they know everything. And, it, it, you know, that, that can, like, make us a little uncomfortable. But arrogance and pride and showmanship and whatever else we might throw in that category, boasting, this is something completely different. It wasn't just a random boastful man that unified all of the religious leaders to say Jesus must die. It was these clear statements of who Jesus was. I mean, again, if we, if we go back to that misconception of where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? That will go down in history as one of the most ill-informed statements on the planet, right? I mean, we can all mistakenly misunderstand something, but to passionately stand behind it and say, nowhere in your Bible does it say Jesus is God. But to understand, like, th again, this is why and how Jesus was crucified. He could not have even been crucified if it wasn't for a claim that was big enough <laughs> to convince Rome that he should be crucified and big enough to convince the people that he should be crucified. All right, so Jesus rules from God's throne. We're going to shift focus a little bit and look at the whole of the New Testament and what it says about Jesus ruling from God's throne. Jesus rules over all creation, both in heaven and on earth. Ephesians 1, 20-22. It says, Which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand 
in the heavenly places, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, in the one to come, and to put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. So how much above? Just a little bit above? Far above. Jesus is seated far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. There is no one like him. So when we, when we say we belong to Jesus, when we're saying we are found in him, he has us in his hand, no one can take us out of his hand, we are saying, God, we belong to you. And though we face trial and tribulation and trouble, we are secure for eternity in the hand of God. And we are secure because he sits on his throne, and his throne is so far above all authority and dominion and power that there's, it's not contested. He's not fighting the devil every day to see who can sit on the throne that day or that year. He is seated far above, and all things are put in subjection under his feet. So Philippians 2.10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow. Even death cannot prevent this from happening. So we can arrogantly and callously shake our fist and curse God, but even in doing that, there will come a day where there is nothing those individuals can do but bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Not unto salvation, but confess it as a reality. So that is powerful. I mean, we, we, on one hand, we think our will is powerful. We think that we can choose what we're going to be and choose what we're going to do. And, you know, we can be tough and we can curse and blaspheme and stomp our way around the life, this life and show our strength. But in reality... We, there's, there's a level of frailty in us that's humbling, should be humbling. It's like even the most arrogant men on the planet that think they have it all. They think they can snap a finger and move money and move military and do what, do what they want, how they want, when they want. But even in that arrogance, every man, every woman, even those under the earth, even those that have already died, they will acknowledge who Jesus is. So Jesus is exalted above all creation, Ephesians 4.10. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So he is exalted above all creation, ascended far above all the heavens. I mean, we can say that as like we believe it, but that is such a crazy reality. He ascended far above the heavens. Hebrews 1.3, it says, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. 
when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down on his throne. Shocking. I mean, nobody can just sit on God's throne, but he did. And then in Revelation 22, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here, he's, it's not just like, oh, he sat, he sat on God's throne, but it wasn't his throne. Here, Jesus is saying, Jesus is identified as the Lamb. He said he's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In other words, it's his. He's not just borrowing the throne of the Father. He is sitting on his own throne. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So it again, is, it is his authority to judge, and it is his seat, it is his throne from which he judges. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then... He will sit on his glorious throne. He will sit on his glorious throne. He will come in his glory, all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. So we really cannot say that, oh, the deity of Jesus was a, something that we just decided at some random time in church history. Like all throughout the scriptures, from beginning to end, we see these strong statements of who Jesus is. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a good man. He was not just a, a moral teacher. Jesus is and was fully God. So Jesus functions as God from God's throne. Acts seven fifty nine through 60, it says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin, this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen's dying. One last declaration. He's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I mean, that's a powerful statement. Like, you're dying breath. I mean, that's, that's like, what are, you putting your, what, are you, what are you reaching for? What are you putting your faith in? And he's saying, Lord Jesus. He wasn't just saying, the God of Abraham, saying, Lord Jesus. And then he also is clearly saying that he believes that Jesus has the power again to forgive sin. He's saying, don't hold their sin against them. So, and then Jesus also receive, receives universal worship from God's throne. Hebrews 1, 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So the angels of God, they were not in any place commanded to worship prophets. They were not commanded to worship any other religious leader. They were not commanded to worship anyone ever. But here, all of the angels were commanded to worship Jesus at his birth. That is stunning. In Revelation 5, 13 through 14, it says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth 
and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped like that is the culmination of the teaching of the deity of Christ that is where it should end this realization that Jesus is sitting on his eternal throne to him belongs the blessing and the honor and the glory and dominion and then there's this act of falling down and worshiping him so th th this five-part series is not a just an intellectual jog where we're talking about the poets of some other generation we, like th this class was about exploring who Jesus is who he was prophesied lived out on earth died because of his claims to be God he rose from the dead the New Testament affirms over and over again post-death and who Jesus was, his identity, his power, his authority, his dominion. And then here we have at the very end of Revelation, or, or in Revelation, at the end of the notes, we see him being worthy of eternal honor, worship, blessing, and the elders falling down in worship. So th that is, uh, I believe, the perfect way to end the class. Jesus is worthy of worship. I mean, that, that, like, that's, what, that's the conclusion. That's the conclusion. He didn't just say cool things that we can tweet and like and follow. Jesus claimed himself to be God and proved it by dying and resurrecting from the dead. And now, because of that, we can put our faith in Christ. We can trust him to save us from our sins, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us back into relationship with the Father, and to be reunited with Him in glory through death. Right? Amen. So does anyone have any questions or comments? Amen. This is something that I am personally passionate about the deity of Christ, but also the method of teaching, of gathering the verses and looking at them together. The Bible is deep and wide. And it is easy if we just selectively, I mean, even on accident, you know, we're just reading through the Bible, chugging along, and we read a verse, and then we keep reading, and we may not realize what is being, what is being said or claimed, right, in that passage or that verse or what what it's connecting to in the Old Testament. Um, but th th this, this is why we have assurance. Not just because of a single verse, but because of a plethora of verses that all connect if we take the time to look at it. Um, and, and I will say, there are many verses that did not make it into the notes. So the challenge to you is as you read the New Testament and as you read through portions of the Old Testament that you will see verses that point to who Jesus is, to his divinity,
to his power, to his authority, to his, his rightful rulership of the earth, to the, the reasons why we are called to obey him, to worship him, to pray to him. Uh, my prayer is that you guys would see that more clearly and that you would fall in love more deeply and that you would be able to, from the scriptures, say, okay, God, I'm not just believing what a man has told me. I'm believing who you are because this is what the scriptures say. And it is rational, it is logical, it is backed up with the reality of history. And I'm not just out on a limb. So Lord, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. God, we thank you, Jesus, for those that have died. God, in the translation of the scriptures. God, we thank you for those that have laid down their life in the preaching of the gospel through different generations. Lord, we thank you that it has now come to us in English, in many different translations, God, where we can see and understand the scriptures. God, we do not take that for granted. We thank you for the clarity of your word, and we pray, God, that it would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.